Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books. And this week I'm very pleased to say that we have Peter Savodnik on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Interloper, Lee Harvey Oswald, Inside the Soviet Union. I was chatting with Peter before we began this interview, and I was amazed that this book hadn't been written before because it is such a great topic. I mean, I suppose the reason is that uh, perhaps the archives weren't open or you couldn't get the interviews that you needed. We'll talk about that in due time. But what I can say about the book, and this highly recommends that it, is that it really does shed a lot of light on Oswald himself. And I think Peter has it exactly right. That is that Oswald is a very troubled person, and this sort of shows it. So, Peter, let me congratulate you on the book, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I am a freelance journalist. I spent the past several years writing for several magazines. Um, and prior to that, I was a uh, newspaper writer and reporter. And uh, I spent uh, several years uh, in the former Soviet Union, uh, first in, in Moscow and then traveling around uh, quite a bit. And uh, the book came out of my experiences there and my thinking about the, the experience of the expatriate American, the wandering American who goes to Russia searching for meaning. Mm-hmm. So that leads right into my next question. Why did you write the book? <laughs> uh, well, uh, the, the book the, the book was not fueled first and foremost by an interest in Oswald, although Oswald is a fascinating character and his experience in the Soviet Union is fascinated. I was, I was interested, first and foremost, in, in Russia and in the Soviet Union, and it, what it was exactly about the Soviet Union that drew so many Americans, uh, and continues to have something of a of a kind of spiritual or cultural power, uh, as evidenced most recently uh, with the case of, of Edward Snowden. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I liked the idea very much, or I was intrigued very, very much by the idea of the the American who is really lost at sea, who uh, is alienated from America, who goes to Russia with an eye toward finding himself, toward achieving himself. And, uh, and, and of course, Oswald was the most notorious uh, example of that, uh, or, or, you know, uh, the best-known uh, example of that, uh, simply because of what he did after he came home. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could talk a little bit about... Um the research that's involved in the book, because I was happy to see that you interviewed a lot of people who knew Oswald. I did. You know, uh, one thing that I discovered when I was in Minsk, where Oswald spent almost all of his time in the Soviet Union, was that you can't really rely on documents or files because you don't know what's what's really authentic, what is uh, reliable. So, People in a way are much are a much better source of information, and 
I, I tried as much as possible to insert myself into the world that Oswald had lived in. Um, I spent a lot of time at the apartment where he lived uh, and in his neighborhood. Uh, I tried to meet all of the people who, who spent any time with him, whether that was at the factory where he worked in the in the experimental department, uh, or uh, girlfriends or close friends outside the factory, uh, places that he frequented, like the opera house or the music conservatory or the foreign language institute, where uh, you were likely to run into or meet uh, girls who could speak English and uh, and were considered more um, I put this gingerly more adventurous. Uh, so. So there was a, you know, I tried as much as possible to kind of parachute myself into Oswald's universe and then to describe that universe from the inside out. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's um, talk about the book itself now. It begins before Oswald uh, enters the Soviet Union. And you have some very interesting things to say about Oswald and the title of the book, The Interloper. And I thought this was one of the most insightful, really just very insightful about Oswald. So why don't you talk a little bit about The Interloper? Well, the whole idea of of the the interloper and Oswald qua interloper is uh, is this idea that Oswald was permanently alienated from his home and really from himself, and so there's this constant fleeing and breaking in pattern that courses through his life, uh, and this is established in the very beginning by his mother. Uh, they they move something like twenty times before he enlists in the Marines, and then he. He moves on to the Soviet Union and comes back to the United States, and each move is an is an effort uh, to to find some semblance semblance of a of a home, some rootedness or or connection, and and each one is a is a is a failure, and with each failure, the the pressure and the sense of alienation ratchets up. So the way then to view the Soviet Union is the most important trespassing or interloping in Oswald's life, uh, the, 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 the period in which he makes the most serious, the most concerted effort to to find a home for himself, to build a home for himself, and, and one, uh, the, the one in which, he, which his failure sort of is felt most keenly, most, um, most painfully. Mm-hmm, I see. I want to dwell a little bit on his time before he went to the Soviet Union. His family life was, to say the least, unstable. Correct. Yeah. So can you talk yes. a little bit about that? He had no father. He did not grow up with his father. His, his father died. But sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. Well, his, his father died uh, a few months before Oswald was born. Um, and Oswald later in life talks about how uh, how this, this this affected him. And, and really, you know, there are these very kind of sad almost poignant moments that, uh, you know, kind of appear at, at, at various moments in his life where he, he tries to, he, he tries to find that kind of uh, uh, fatherly structure or, or somebody or something to fill in the, the gap. So whether that is uh, one of the, the men who, uh, um, who winds up with his mother uh, or the Marines uh, or the Soviet Union, there is this effort constantly on the part of Oswald to, to find that structure, to find that, that kind of father figure or, or organization that will provide him with the kind of focus that he, he so clearly wants. Uh, and, and, and this, I think, further underscores the, the whole idea of the Soviet Union, not as an ideological crusade, which Oswald thought it was, 
but rather as a as a as a as an, an effort to um, to, to build a, a real home for himself and a, and a real sort of place, a place of, of sort of belonging. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and of course, the, the militaristic um, quality of, of, of and, and a sort of revolution and communism lent it all much more of a, of a masculine flavor. So, you know, that's exactly what Oswald was after. He had spent his whole life with a woman, Marguerite, who had been a disaster as a, as a mother, and he desperately craved was a father who could say, this is what you do, this is what you don't do, uh, this is how you live, this is how you don't live, and, and so forth. And uh, the problem with that, he didn't really know how to contend with that. He wanted that, but, but then when he was confronted with that, when someone said, well, you have to do this and you can't do that, uh, he didn't really know how to do that because he'd never actually done it. So he, he liked the idea very much, and he seemed to intuit that he... he needed it and that this is this is a necessary part of of achieving some kind of maturation or development but when it came time to adapting to growing up to contending with all of his foibles and 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 coming to terms with those things and then saying well I'm going to grow he, he didn't know how to do that so what would happen instead is he would run away the way his mother did uh, and 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 that of course uh, you know, gave him a sort of very short-term fix or sense of, of freedom, but it was coupled with a great sense of loss. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and each time, the, the kind of intensity uh, would, would, uh, would grow. Mm-hmm. So that was the... Um, that was the, the father element in his, in his thinking. Mm-hmm. So moving was what Marguerite did, his mother. I mean, she moved, uh, you say it's 20 times in before he uh, joined the Marines, and the longest he ever spent in one place was four years? Yeah, when he was a kid, I think it was when he was around 8, 9, 10, 11. He said about four, three or four years, I forget the exact uh, you know, amount of time, but three or four years in in uh in in one home with Marguerite and I think she's living at the time that lived exile and he's the closest that they come to a sort of family for a while. But then inevitably, as is always the case with Marguerite, things fall apart. She can't hold on to a job, she can't hold on to a relationship. And so he's yanked out of whatever world he's in and that is Oswald Lee and and they go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why by the time he's over 13, he's showing signs of, of wanting desperately to get out, to, to, to set out on his own, and, and, and to build his own home. And when he arrives in the Soviet Union, he, he writes these letters to his mother and his brother that are surprisingly personal. They're, they're not about, uh, well, they are about ideology, about Marxism, but, but they're also very, very much about family and life. And he says, I'm going to start a new life here. I'm going to build a new life here. I want nothing to do with you. And there's a great deal of, of rage in the letters and, and a sense that, you know, I'm full of hope and I don't want anything to do with you. And, you know, this is my, my new future and stay away. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what he does. He pursues that for some time. And then, of course, he, you know, he, 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 he decides he wants to go home for a number of reasons. Yeah, yeah. It just struck me reading your book that he, you know, he had the idea of a family, but no family. And he had the idea of a community, but never had a community. And it was sort of just held Correct. up in front of him. He knew what they were, and he knew he didn't have them. And this caused him great pain throughout his life. Because he had a horrible yeah. childhood. I mean, really horrible. 
Correct. I mean, I'm not excusing anything he did, but it, he did yeah, not. Of course he, not. It was obviously it was a horrible childhood. Um, so let's uh, yeah. let's get him into Marxism into the Soviet Union. How was he introduced to uh, Marxism? So when he was a kid, uh, he was probably uh, around 13. He was living in New York uh, for a few years with his mom in New York City. He runs into a protester on the street who is uh, handing out brochures or literature on behalf of the Rosenbergs, uh, who were then um, who had been condemned to uh, to death but had not yet been executed. And he's, uh, he he claims in a, in a later interview uh, with a reporter in Moscow that this is a turning point for him. This is when he was introduced to radical politics, and from there he he began to read Marx. Uh, and eventually, he, he claims to have read um, uh, um, uh, Marx's *Das Kapital*. Uh, that all may be sort of true. I, I think that he probably he, he's probably telling the truth when it, when it comes to you know having met this person who gave him the literature uh, and having been introduced to radical politics. How much he understood of the Marx uh, is unclear. Uh, he he certainly picked up the vernacular. He he had bits and pieces of the of the ideas, the language, but he didn't have any of the education or the historical or or political consciousness that that usually we associate with revolutionaries or radicals. But but he he begun to think about these things a great deal. It's fair to say by the time he was about. 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a sort of naive way, but with the sort of fervor of a possible convert. Correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm always thinking of the, and I don't mean to cast aspersions upon anybody, but I'm thinking of these people that I sometimes see or used to see in places like Harvard Square behind the, uh, you know, the, the tables for the young Spartacists. You know, they, I don't think they yeah, exactly. really know what's going on, but um, I'm sure the Young Spartacus are a fine organization. Let me just say that. <laughs> uh, so, so, um, yeah, and then he joins the Marines. Yes. Yeah, so, so explain that. Right. So there's an apparent contradiction there. Uh, on the one hand, he, he enlists in the Marines at the same time he's uh, thinking a great deal about defecting to the Soviet Union. And the two would seem to be at odds uh, with each other. But I don't really think so. Um, both are driven uh, by personal desire to to uh, leave home, to, to get away from his mother. Uh, the first, the Marines made perfectly good sense because both of his both his older brother and his older half brother uh, had served, and he knew he knew about them. This is a this is a viable option. It was an easy way out. He just had to go to the, the local recruitment office, sign a few forms, and. You were set, and it was a very easy thing for a 16 or 17 year old kid to imagine doing. So that made perfectly good sense. But the problem was that the Marines were they, they, they were what he wanted them to be. He thought, um, meaning they were intensely patriarchal, and there were lots of men there, and they provided him with the organization and structure he thought that he wanted. But he didn't really know how to contend with that. So he. He gets the Marines, and it turns out that being being a Marine Corps in the 1950s is hard, and and there's a very very intensely militaristic, uh, really violent culture of, about the Marines. Uh, you know, all the men he served with, young men, you know, had older brothers, uncles, fathers, uh, coaches who had served in World War II and in Korea, and 
the mentality among many young Marines then was, you need to fight to prove your manliness. And there's a real emphasis on being a man and achieving, you know, one's um, manhood in a way. Uh, and Oswald didn't really know how to, how to what to make of that. Uh, it, bear in mind that he, he had very few men who were a part of his life growing up. So he, he never really did a natural athlete. So he didn't really get what that meant. And, and I think a lot of that was, was very... Um, was very sort of strange to him uh, and off-putting. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't, you know, he 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 doesn't get kicked out of the Marines. He he doesn't exactly thrive there. He doesn't make friends, uh, but he does serve. And then um, he leaves under what circumstances? So from the very beginning, uh, from his, his time in, in boot camp in San Diego, he's he's not really at home. Uh, it's not exactly what he expected, and um, he's he has all these kind of uh, run-ins with the with sort of his higher ups, uh, and this starts when he's in Japan in Atsugi, uh, which is a base uh, just outside Tokyo, and he, he he wounds himself at one point. He gets in a few fights, uh, but he he kind of. He, he kind of does okay. He's not a he's not a disaster. He doesn't get in a lot of trouble, but he's just not. Uh, he's hardly exemplary, and, and he doesn't have many friends. Uh, he's he's thought of as kind of a loner, a little bit weird. Uh, they 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 his, his, his sort of other other guys in his unit take to kind of um, not exactly poking fun at him so much as just thinking of him as kind of weird. Uh, and and eventually, what happens is that he 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 decides that, as as is to be expected, that he's not. This is not right. He's got to go somewhere else. He has to trespass into some other life, and that is going to be, of course, the Soviet Union. And the past, or I should say, for the last year of his time in the Marines, he is focused 110 percent on getting out of the Marines and getting into the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and so uh, and he starts talking very openly among his you know, other fellow Marines about wanting to go to Russia and about uh, being uh, about being sort of enthusiastic about uh, communism and about Sovietism, all of which is very strange if you're in the Marine Corps. Uh, and uh, and then eventually he asked for a, uh, a sort of an early uh, discharge, but uh, uh, not not a it's not a uh, much earlier, but it's a little bit earlier. And he and he says he wants to do this to help his mother. Um, is alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, uh, and he goes home and he immediately takes off for the Soviet Union. Right, and they're they're quite happy to get rid of him. <laughs> I imagine. It, it, yeah, the thing is, they didn't really. Um, I don't think they really thought much about Oswald. It was only later, after he shows up in the in the Soviet Union, and he offers to give the Soviets information that he says that he acquired as a Marine. That the Marines. Uh, downgrade his, his discharge, but initially they just thought he was you know, really. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. That's interesting. It's just a, just a normal marine. Right. <laughs> rewrite. They rewrite history for themselves. Um, right. So, uh, so he hatches a plan to go to the the, the Soviet Union, and, and it's kind of a clever one. It is clever. Um, it's look. I mean, Oswald was always smarter than I think he's probably we might expect him to have been. But he's he's above average, so he 
you know, he hatches this, this pretty complicated plan that involves taking a boat from New Orleans to La Havre, uh, France, and then going uh, via train and plane to England and then uh, via a few other stops onto Helsinki, where he gets his uh, his uh, six-day Soviet tourist visa, uh, takes the overnight train to Moscow, and then once he arrives in Moscow, tells the KGB that he has no desire to stay just six days. He plans to be a Soviet citizen forever. Uh, and that initiates the whole process. Mm-hmm. And how did how is he received by these Soviet authorities? So they could care less that he has any um, you know sort of ideological fervor. That is the the, the least uh, 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 of, of almost you know, of, of absolutely zero concern to them. Uh, what they want to know is what he can provide them, and it becomes clear very quickly that he can't provide them anything. He thinks he can because he served on the base at Atsuki where there were U-2 spy planes, but he doesn't know anything they don't already know. So uh, so once they figure out that he's got nothing to offer them, they tell him he has to go. And it's at that point that he attempts to kill himself. Mm-hmm. He attempts to kill himself, and he winds up, uh, they, they take care of him, and they put him back in the, they put him in the, I forget which hotel it is, the Moskva, or where do they put him? First, well, the, the first, first he's in Berlin. He's there, he's at the Berlin, right? Which is now the Savoy. Uh, and and then he, when he gets out, he's put in the Metropole. Yes, and, in Met- uh, right, yeah, exactly, the Metropole. Yeah. yeah, and and when he when after the, the suicide attempt, the the KGB says in essence, okay, you know what? Uh, if he wants to say, you know, we want we don't want anything else to do with this. You know, like if someone else is really important in the popular, or someone else wants to let him stay because they're worried about the you know, the so-called objects uh, surrounding this, and so be it. Uh, and, and I think it's important here to bear in mind when Oswald showed up in the Soviet Union. He, he, he arrived in, in Moscow in mid-October, just a few weeks after, mid-October 1959, just a few weeks after Khrushchev uh, returned from the United States. And, and the Soviet premier had this very successful trip on uh, meeting with uh, Dwight Eisenhower and a tour of the United States, and there was a sense in Moscow and in Washington that there was a sort of a, a potential for a real kind of warming of relations. And there's a legitimate concern in Moscow that anything kind of inflammatory or political, like, say, an ex-Marine, uh, you know, being perceived as, you know, giving away state secrets or trying to kill himself, could undermine that that uh, warning. So that's what the KGB wants now. But once he attempts to kill himself, the feeling is, well, but look, maybe it's better just to let him stay. Maybe he's less of a of a problem to us if we if we just allow him to, to live here and, you know, kind of somewhere far away be quiet. Mm-hmm. And we should also add that he's made the papers in the States by this time. He has. The, the, the U.S. Embassy decides that they're going to leak his story to several reporters with an eye toward putting pressure on Oswald. They, they figure rather smartly at the embassy that if they if, if they tell a few reporters and if those stories appear in the States, then his family will start calling him, and and that'll put some pressure on him to come home. All this happens, except uh, none of it deters Oswald from staying in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because he really wants to stay. Yeah, and, and in fact, if anything... Uh, the attention has the, the exact opposite effect. Um, it, it makes him more excited. It makes him feel more like a celebrity. So uh, he enjoys the phone calls. He enjoys 
not hanging up on his mother, for example, but he uh, he does not uh, respond to the the pressure the way that the Americans thought he would. Mm-hmm. So the uh, Soviet authorities, at a pretty high level now, because they want to avoid a diplomatic incident um, or tarnishing their image, uh, have to decide what to do with him, and they end up sending him to, of all places, Minsk. Why Minsk? Correct. Um, the, the most important thing about Minsk is that it is far away and boring. Uh, it's provincial. <laughs> so, you know, from the, from the vantage point of the KGB, Minsk is perfect because there's nothing really important going on there. Uh, and so, you know, if this American, when they can't really figure it out, I mean, they, what, what I think the KGB finds most sort of um, disturbing about Oswald is that he wants to be in the Soviet Union so much. Uh, that seems to them perplexing. They don't, they don't understand that. So, with that in mind, they want him far away from anything important, namely Moscow. And uh, and the genius of Minsk, and I don't think this is necessarily intended, uh, because most other most other uh, defectors at a time, American defectors, were sent to the Ukraine. But the, the genius of Minsk is that Minsk was one of the most conservative regions of the country. So, it, it, Oswald was enveloped by. A very, very kind of um, patriotically Soviet world. Uh, that's that's where he was sort of, you know, parachuted into. And I think that this had a way of deeply compounding his, his sense of alienation eventually from the Soviet Union, uh, because everyone around him was was maybe they didn't necessarily buy into. The propaganda, but they were at least uh, they were at least uh, superficially uh, proudly Soviet, and and that that I think eventually added to uh, Oswald's complications and and going through troubles with the authorities. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned a couple of other things about Minsk. I don't know if people know this, but uh, Belarus, the the place which is now Belarus. Uh, really suffered horribly, re- really horribly during the war. Minsk was completely destroyed and rebuilt. Um, and the, the, all of the inhabitants of Minsk were either killed or left, and the new Minsk, which they built, was populated by people from villages. Correct. Yeah, who all, you know, who bring the village with them to the city. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is also really important to, to consider because I think something like only maybe one in ten of the people who had lived in Minsk before the war were there after the war, uh, or were at least alive. They might not even have been in Minsk anymore, but they they survived. And and what this means is that the vast majority of people who who populate and fill out Minsk after the war are, for the most part, pretty simple uh, villagers who who have come to Minsk not because. Uh, they have any particular love for the city, you know, as a city, because this this means, um, relatively speaking, in, in Soviet Union, freedom. Uh, if you live in a city, you get uh, papers that enable you to travel freely within the country. If you live in a village, you don't have those papers. So everyone wants to live in a city because then it means you can go visit, say, you know, your aunt in uh, Sarapov or, you know, your your father in Leningrad or wherever. So you... You, you want to live in a city, and so all these villagers come to the city, and they become uh, Manchani, uh, people from Minsk. And, and of course, everyone knows that these people aren't actually from Minsk, even though they're claiming they're from Minsk. But then again, there are no records left. There are no documents. The war has literally destroyed everything. So you can say, I am I was born in Minsk, I'm from Minsk, uh, and 
uh, and there's no one who can disprove you. So you had, you know, you know, by the 40s, late 40s, 50s, you had a, a city that was overwhelmingly rural in its in its nature, but it was a city still. So there's, a, there's a contradiction there. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, obviously, um, Oswald has to do something. What do they decide he's going to do for work? <laughs> right. So, so Oswald is assigned to this this job at this um, television and radio factory, the, the Minsk Radio Factory, and. He works in, in this department called the Experimental Department, uh, which sounds kind of ominous or Dr. Strange published, <laughs> but it's not. It's, it's, um, the Experimental Department is, is basically where it's divided into two halves. There are the engineers and then there are the metal lathe operators. The engineers um, design these prototypes. They're, they're experimenting. They're coming up with new ideas for television sets. And... The milling operators uh, are charged with turning those prototypes into, you know, into or turning those, those blueprints into prototypes, uh, into making the television sets. So you have this this kind of very interesting, distinctly Soviet kind of dichotomy where you've got the, uh, you know, the well-educated, technically educated uh, uh, engineers on on you know on. You know, one half, uh, and then you have the the, the true proletarians, uh, you know, working you know with the, the the welding machines and you know on these big tables with all this kind of um, you know pipes and, and different pieces of metal and knobs and uh, and there's this kind of sort of almost like a a, a very kind of well, distinctly Soviet, uh, vaguely happy kind of cooperation that, 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 you know, holds the whole thing together. Uh, everyone I spoke with actually who worked there remembers the factory somewhat fondly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now it goes without saying, I don't know if it goes without saying, you need to say it, uh, nothing in Oswald's background prepared him for this work. Correct. Uh, if he doesn't have any of the skills, when he shows up, the, 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 the guy who's, is, who's his immediate supervisor, Philippe uh, uh, you know, says to him, well, so what do you, you know, what do you know how to do? I mean, all Vlachuk knows is that, you know, early one morning, some, some guy uh, from the, the control, which is the, the, the intelligence services, shows up and says, uh, you have a new employee, he's an American. <laughs> and, you know, there's no questioning that. That's just the way it is now. And so his job, Lashuk's job, is to find a job for Oswald. And basically, there are a few different things you can do as a middle life operator in the experimental department. Uh, and so he, he shows them the different, the different jobs, and they all involve more or less the same thing. I mean, you're fitting together different parts, you're looking at blueprints, you're conferring with uh, engineers if you don't understand what you're supposed to do, and um, and, you're, and you're, you know, your job the whole time is to get more familiar with the equipment to uh, to be, you know, to, to become a more skilled uh, metal weight operator. And in fact, he starts out as a, what they call like a, like a sort of level zero, uh, and then he eventually gets to level two, and he'd been going, he'd been a more serious um, worker, and he's been a better proletarian, he would have probably gotten to a three or four. Uh, but um, anyway, that's his, uh, that's his life. That's right. his job there. Right. Now, these people um, could not have seen Oswald as anything but a liability. I mean, he, they knew that he was being watched by the security services. He was an American, and probably the only American that they'd ever seen. <laughs> 
and and he was just an accident waiting to happen, right? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, so how did people interact with him? I mean, they must have been afraid of him. So, yes and no. Uh, you know, this is a period of relative openness in the Soviet Union, and uh, and there is a sense of uh, a newfound freedom. So, you know, there was a great deal of interest in Oswald, and, and of course, a great deal of curiosity, uh, at least at first. Uh, what, the, the, but at the same time, yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, you know, most people would have been uh, rightly uh, very frightened to get too close, to have much contact with him, and for good reason. Everyone who came into contact with Oswald was subsequently contacted by, or cornered, I should say, by the KGB, and and uh, asked, or really told, that they would inform on him. So, you had good reason to want to avoid uh, avoid him, but he could only create problems for you. Mm-hmm. And so, did he, uh, I mean, let me put it this way. They did make some effort to assimilate him, even though he was, as I say, a kind of a dangerous thing. And they did it, if I read mm-hmm. your book correctly, in kind of three ways. The easiest was is they tried to teach him Russian, right? They did. Um, you know, the thing with the teaching Russian was, you know, he gets formal instruction for all six weeks, and, and his teachers are, are, are engineers who have never taught Russian to a foreigner. So, mm-hmm. um, the... the, the it doesn't really seem correct to say that, that they were that the Soviets were all that serious about teaching in Russia. And I think that the more likely explanation for the, the Russian instruction was they wanted to gauge just how much Russian he knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, they claimed not to have known any. He spent a lot of time in his hotel room back in Moscow studying Russian. But, but you know, the KGB didn't trust anyone uh, ever. And so, you know, just because Oswald claimed not to know much Russian or boasted that he knew Russian in a way that indicated he did not, that didn't mean they actually believed that he didn't know Russian. And so they they wanted to spend time figuring out, you know, I think, just how much does this guy actually know? And not just how much Russian language does he know, but how much about us does he know? So, you know, I think after about five or six weeks, they figure out that he's... He really is, uh, as he's known as he, as, as he, you know, as, as, as they, they believed he was, um, and and he's less of a threat than they, they perhaps uh, thought he might have. Mm-hmm. And then after six weeks, they 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 declare that he knows Russian. Uh, they do, <laughs> uh, and, and but you know the thing is that he actually learns a great deal of Russian the way that anyone would sure. just by being there, uh, and and so he. He picks up a bit of the language over the next, uh, you know, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So, the second thing they do is um, they give a, him sort of ideological instruction. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, so he's monitored and encouraged to take part in uh, in in you know uh, communist party activities, but you know they always keep him a little bit at arm's length. Uh, I think part of that is. They they expect that eventually he's going to leave, so there's really no point in in kind of investing too much in the way of sort of ideological indoctrination on him. But the other thing is that uh, I, I think that you know they they were interested they they were they were a little bit mystified by Oswald because Oswald seems to have been totally oblivious to all the things that had happened in Russia between, say, 
the 1920s and the 1960s, uh, <laughs> namely the Gulag, the purges, the war, the whole advent of Stalinism, um, the uh, you know the, the kind of the tragedy of of the communist experience in Russia, and, and, and why it was, for example, or I should say, Oswald seems to have been totally unaware of the fact that uh, leftists in the West had had you know migrated away from the Soviet Union were no longer uh were no longer as enthusiastic about the Soviet Union and now put all their energies and their hopes and aspirations into new uh Marxist experiments in say you know China or Cuba. Uh and Oswald teams basically do have been unaware of all that. So there's a there's a, a weird disconnect between Oswald and and uh, and his place as always. Mm-hmm. So um, a third thing they do is they move him into an apartment surrounded by other um, sort of uh, people from Minsk. Can you talk a little Correct. bit about that? Yeah, they give him a great place, um, as you know, as far as you know, Soviet standards go. Right? How big was it? Two hundred and thirty uh, square feet or something? I can't remember. Uh, Two hundred and sixty, I think. Two hundred sixty square feet. Uh, yeah. Remember that when you're looking for an apartment, people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, if you. Well, you should bear in mind that, you know, today the apartment looks like a dump. Uh, I've spent a lot of time there. But at the time, it was only uh, probably, you know, seven or eight years old. Uh, it was it was part of the, you know, big reconstruction effort that took place in Minsk after the war. It was built in the old uh, Stalinist monumentalist styles. So you had these high ceilings, thick walls, uh, had a very imperial uh, look from the outside. There's a balcony with a beautiful view of the Sisok River. Uh, you know, for, uh, you know, any number of, say, <laughs> New Yorkers in, you know, like anywhere uh, in Manhattan, uh, they would probably uh, see Oswald's place and think, well, you know, I can make this into something really comfortable because, you know, he had a, um, he had a nice setup. The, the typical, uh, that, that, that apartment typically would have gone to a family of three or four. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... So I'll go out to himself and and uh, and actually had a had a pretty nice life. It, you know, having said that, they uh, they were monitoring him all the time. They were watching him through a peephole uh, next door. Uh, everyone around him was informing on him. They certainly had listening devices in the apartment. So uh, you know, no part of his life was actually uh, a secret, but. Uh, but it was very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so is he able to make friends? Now, we should, we should talk about the word right. friend in Russian. That means something slightly different than right. it does in English. Yeah, so go ahead and talk about it, that. Yeah, no, he, he is able to make friends. Um, uh, he's able to make friends. He, uh, he's, um, but, but you're correct. Uh, you know, what, what an American means by friend is, is different from the Russian notion of, you know, drug. Uh, and, uh, and Oswald, being American, probably never really gets this. Uh, the you know from from his vantage point it's very nice um, people are very friendly uh, he he meets people at the factory he meets girls at the foreign language institute he, he acquires uh, probably two or three very close friends who uh, by the close I mean people who spend a lot of time with him um, all of whom wind up informing on him uh, for the KGB but. You know, I mean, he has, as far as most of us, you know, would, you know, think about these things, a pretty good life. 
uh, yeah, she has a very good life. So uh, the big mystery of it also is not, you know, whether he killed Kennedy or, uh, or, or you know, was he working for this or that intelligence organization. It was, why did he ever leave the Soviet Union? Mm-hmm. And, and moreover, we should talk about this. He actually meets girls. A couple he of them. And one girls. of them he marries. So go ahead and talk about that. He meets, he meets, right. He meets Marina Krasikova at this, uh, at this big uh, dance. Uh, this is ball or, or party, um, March 17th, 1961. And, uh, you know, she's... She's kind of how to put this. Uh, she's provocative. Uh, she has, you know, kind of big Bridget Bardot style hair, uh, bright lipstick, uh, uh, a sort of very, you know, revealing dress, uh, heels, uh, very pungent uh, uh, perfume, and uh, she's very touchy. Uh, she laughs uh, probably a little bit too loudly when when Oswald says something, uh, he's not a particularly funny guy, but, but she seems to think that everything he says is hysterical. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, he's, he's, he's really taken with her. But the, the thing about Marina, though, is that, you know, Oswald understood actually rather well that Marina was a stand-in, at least for a while, for the woman whom he, he really loved, uh, who he had fallen in love with and whom he had proposed to and had turned him down, and um, that was Ella Germain. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you, you know, in a way, Oswald actually had a strange, strangely had a good bit of insight into his own thinking here. He, he often lacks a lot of insight when it comes to himself and, and you know, why it is he thinks and feels the way he, he does, but here he seemed to get very clearly what Marina was all about. Um, what she was about was, was helping him overcome Ella. Uh, I don't think he ever shared this with her, but he certainly, uh, he certainly felt that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as you say, let's go to this mystery. Uh, you know, he's been in the Soviet Union for a little bit now, and he uh, has a really nice apartment. He has a good, stable job. Uh, he um, has enough money, and uh, now he has a girlfriend, a fiancé, who will become his wife. Yet, uh, and it does look pretty good. And by Soviet standards, it's very good at the time. It, it's great. Yeah. yeah. And had he stayed there, he could have expected, uh, you know, a pretty nice, good life. He, he, you know, he would have eventually um, joined the party. He would have become a, a level six um, uh, uh, mental operator, or what they call a master, um, which meant that he would have uh, acquired a certain status with his apartment. Um, he would have acquired a Dodger probably, maybe in about 10 years, a car. Uh, his kids um, would have been guaranteed a very, very good, um, probably more technical education, but still a very, you know, solid one. Uh, and he he probably would have lived till about, you know, 70, 75 maybe, uh, maybe a little bit longer, maybe not much more. He didn't smoke, uh, he didn't drink much, so maybe, you know, he, he, he Oh, he would probably be alive today, mm-hmm. uh, and he would probably, uh, um, you know, be living in, in one of these very, very big, um, to, to our mind, kind of depressing uh, Brezhnev or Gorbachev era uh, apartment blocks that, uh, that are sprawling and faceless, but, you know, by, by Soviet or Belarusian standards are very nice. Uh, with, you know, interior heating and, you know, a constant source of uh, uh, protein and vodka and, uh, you know, a woman and kids and uh, and uh, what else do you want? Right. Well, what else did he want? He ends up leaving. Why does he leave? He does. 
He leaves because, as in the case of the Marines, he doesn't know how to fit in. I mean, why did he leave the Marines? The Marines were a good opportunity for him. Had he stuck it out with the Marines, he would have had a career, and a good career at that. Uh, and a career, you know, uh, you know, on the right side of history to boot. Um, but uh, he left the Marines because he couldn't he couldn't do it. He didn't know how to he didn't know how to make that work. And the same was true in the Soviet Union. He he never really said to himself, What do you what do you need to do in order to become one of these people? What happens is that eventually his celebrity begins to fade. And as his celebrity fades, uh, you know, it becomes more incumbent upon Oswald to fit in, to work, to say, Okay, well now, you're no longer a novelty. Now you just have to be one of them. You have to fit in. You have to go ahead with building your life. And he doesn't know how to do that. So it's fun while everyone thinks that he's new and strange. But at a certain point, he just becomes this this kind of guy. And he's sort of whiny and he's not particularly, you know, special. Uh, he doesn't have any kind of special skills. He's not educated. Uh, so, you know, he's not, he's not that much to, to brag about. And I, I think that's essentially what happens. I mean, after six months or so, he began to whine a lot about, you know, how tough life is there. Well, of course it's tough there. It's the Soviet Union. Uh, and it's the Soviet Union in the wake of World War II. Uh, and, and, you know, he's, he's known to be a kind of lazy metal ace operator. So, you know, uh, uh, he's not... He never ever said to himself, you know, what's it going to be like, you know, when you leave here? Really? I mean, he's never, that is, he never, he doesn't have that, that father, you know, in his life who can then help him, even in his head, say to himself, you know, ask the important, reasonable questions that, you know, the, the, the boys often get from their, from their fathers. You know, when, when you know, the, the, the father says, well, it's fine and well that you want to, like, you know, you know, move from here to there, but have you thought about the consequences of that? You know, have you, you know, are you being an adult? Are you, you know, grow up already, you know, take responsibility for your actions. There's, there's no one like that in his life. And all he has at home is his mother, you know, beseeching him to come home. Mm-hmm. But that's the last thing he needs. Really what he needs is someone to say, you know what, stick it out. You know, grow up. Uh, build a life for yourself there. You, you made your bed, now sleep in it. Uh, he never does that. So, uh, so he comes home and uh, it's a disaster. Yeah, how, how does he get out very briefly? So it takes him a long time. Uh, he uh, he has to go through the um, kind of various bureaucratic diplomatic uh, uh, channels in the United States and uh, with the Soviets. Um, and it's not just him; it's also Marina. Uh, uh, there are some uh, people at the Immigration and Naturalization Service in the states who don't think that he should be allowed to come back home, given the things he's said about the United States. He's, he's made some very very kind of vituperative uh, comments about America. Um, but eventually, um, you know, he never actually forfeits his citizenship, so there's nothing they can do to keep him out. Uh, he comes home, uh, and uh, they give Marina her papers, too. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it takes, him, it takes him about a year to really to make it happen. But, but in June 1962, he leaves. Okay, so where does he go, and what does he do? Uh, well, he's, he takes a, they take a boat back and it takes him to Hoboken and then he's in New York for a night, they're in New York for a night, but then they wind up immediately going back to Texas. Uh, and, and he basically spends the next 17 months, the last 17 months of his life, jumping between, jumping between Texas and Louisiana, which is exactly the same pattern that, uh, that filled out his, his whole childhood and early adolescence. Uh, he makes one, uh, you know, chaotic effort toward the very end, um, to, to go to Mexico with an eye toward, 
going back to Cuba or going on to Cuba and then possibly going back to the Soviet Union. Um, the, the Soviets, at this point, want nothing to do with him. Uh, once the Cubans learn that, uh, they decide they want nothing to do with him either, uh, or, or also. Uh, and then he comes back. And, and what you can see, you know, as well, is this kind of bubbling up, this, this building up of the pressure. And, uh, and, and something has to give. And it's interesting because he only tends to make it about a year or a year and a half before he, he feels the need to, to get the hell out. And the assassination takes place 17 months after his return to the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the big question is, obviously, how does all this bear? How does his experience in the Soviet Union bear on the explanation of his assassination of JFK? So the Soviet Union was supposed to be the end of history. It was supposed to be, you know, where he uh, achieved himself and uh, built this this life for himself and, and found this sense of rootedness, and he failed miserably. And what what you get from this is that when Argo returns to the United States, he comes back with this sense of desperation and hopelessness and, and helplessness, this feeling that in some way all is lost. And... and and, and really, moving forward, you know, for the last year, year and a half of his life, it, it's just really about sort of getting by, um, even as the rage and the sense of alienation continue to build. Uh, and, and and really what, what seems to be, what seems apparent in Oswald is a desire, above all, to escape this life, which is, is basically suicidal. So, you know, he doesn't have any particular... You know, ideological uh, interest in in, uh, in murdering the president. Uh, after all, he, you know, he tried to, to assassinate this this you know right wing extremist, this this uh, former general, uh, you know, several months before the assassination. Uh, this is about uh, this is about you know doing something that is going to end his life as he knows it, but going out with a proverbial bang, mm-hmm. uh, elevating himself in some way to a sort of like world historical status. Mm-hmm. And, and the great tragedy, of course, is that. Um, this is a life that was shot through with failure, but in this one uh, critical respect, he succeeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, he reminds me a lot of a sort of typical adolescent. Uh, yeah, very much, I think. Uh, he just never grew uh, up. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and, there's, and there's the... He never figures out... Uh, no one ever tells him, and he never you know, knows, knows how or is able to figure out how to... You say, okay, you know what, enough indulging yourself, now you have to grow up. Now you have to make do with what you've got and make the best out of it and build something out of it. Right. Uh, he never figures out how to do that. Yeah, he thrashes about. I mean, I don't know about your adolescence, but I thrashed about in adolescence trying to figure out who I was and what I should do. So I guess one, one, one uh, consideration that we should talk about a little bit is, uh, is this... Uh, uh, well, let, let me state what I think. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was not insane. Is that correct. right? Yeah. So what do you, do you that have, is absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. No, he wasn't crazy. He was. Uh, he was um, simply, you know, deeply alienated, um, uh, deeply, uh, you know, sort of prone to uh, rage and violence. Uh, was he? Was he insane in the sense that he didn't have? If he was detached from reality or he didn't have control over his, his thoughts or actions? Of course not. Um, he was in complete control, which is why he should be held responsible for, for the, the murder of the president. But, but, uh, but is it fair to say that he, um, you know, he suffered greatly from the sort of, you know, uh, 
existential uh, crisis or, or alienation. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that part of your book that I found uh, really very insightful. I mean, again, Thank not you. to excuse anything he did, but he had a horrible childhood. And his experiences in the Marines and the Soviet Union had to have been tremendously dispiriting for somebody looking for a place in the world. And somebody who didn't yes. really have the uh, chops to do it. You know, and he hadn't been given them when he was growing up. He just didn't have a rudder. <laughs> he just didn't have a rudder. Exactly. And he yeah. just sort of floated around until he happened upon, I think, what many adolescents do, a kind of grand geste. You know, I'll just do something really big and I'll show everybody. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it's a, very, it's a very sad thing. So you don't hold any truck with any of these conspiracy theories or anything like that. No, and I think the most important thing to bear in mind about the conspiracy theories is that none of them actually aim toward uh, anything like an understanding of what actually happened. I don't actually think that there's a single serious conspiracy theorist in the country who, uh, who, who wants to get to the bottom of anything. I think that what they want to do is to help buttress a, a preconceived uh, you know, conviction or, or idea that somehow America is... Deeply corrupted or rotten mm-hmm. in some in, in the sense that it's controlled by external forces over which ordinary Americans, whatever we mean by that, have no control. So, you know, it, it feeds perfectly into um, you know uh, a certain paranoia um, or uh, a sense of helplessness, uh, a sense of alienation. Uh, but uh, I don't think it has anything to do with reality or with anything akin to a genuine sort of like you know, seeking out of fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, Peter, and I want to thank you for it. Let me ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what is your current project? What are you working on now? Uh, I'm, I'm sort of uh, casting about myself. I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of different projects, um, possibilities, um, but, you know, I am a journalist, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah, at, don't I know? Um, yeah. Different places. But, right. uh, no, uh, look, I appreciate your time very much. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, today we've been talking with uh, Peter Savodnik about his book, uh, The Interloper, Lee Harvey Oswald, Inside the Soviet Union. I can tell you that this is an absolutely fascinating book, and I think that uh, almost anybody interested in the topic or American history should should really go out and read it. I really, really enjoyed this book. I, I don't say that about all the books that uh, I read, but I really enjoyed this one, and I hope people uh, go out and buy it. It's an important book, and I want to say, Peter, thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, this is Marshall Poe uh, for the New Books Network. I hope everybody has a great week. Take care. Thank you.